In August 1348, a shy 15-year-old English princess named Joan left her home for the last time. She was on a voyage to meet her future husband, Prince Pedro of Castile. Her heart raced in anticipation. She was about to become a married woman. Joan departed England in four large ships, each filled to the deck with expensive furs, silks, and treasure. For protection, she had 100 of the most skilled archers in England. After a few days at sea, Joan's fleet stopped in the French city of Bordeaux. It was a brief respite before continuing on to Spain. Joan expected a ceremony to welcome her arrival, but when the mayor of Bordeaux greeted her at the dock, his eyes were full of fear. The town was under attack by a terrible sickness. He warned her to seek accommodation elsewhere. Just then, a breeze wafted in from the shore, carrying the stench of human decay. Joan consulted her advisors, who assured her that it would be safe. She spritzed perfume on a handkerchief and covered her face. As her carriage rode through town, Joan grew increasingly nervous. The mayor hadn't lied. Disease was everywhere. She saw dozens of corpses left to rot in the streets. Hideous black welts, some the size of grapefruits, protruded from their bodies. Joan and her escort arrived at the chateau, a magnificent castle overlooking the river. She settled in for the night and tried to forget what she'd seen. She reminded herself that she'd soon be married, living her best life in Spain. But Joan never reached her fiancé. In less than two weeks, she was dead. Joan was one of the first English victims of what future generations called the Black Death. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on bubonic plague, one of the most lethal and contagious diseases in history. It decimated Europe and Asia during several pandemics, sometimes killing half of those who caught it. This week, we'll explore the spread of plague in both the 6th and 14th centuries. We'll also examine some of the medieval treatments and the impact this disease had on society. Next week, we'll trace an outbreak that began in Asia in the late 19th century and migrated to the United States. We'll follow doctors' attempts to contain it and look at what might happen should the Black Death ever return. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In the mid-1300s, the English King Edward III had dreams of conquering France. 
He won a great battle in 1346, and victory seemed close at hand. So Edward arranged for his youngest daughter, 15-year-old Princess Joan, to marry Prince Pedro, heir to the Castilian throne in Spain. Edward hoped the alliance between England and Castile would give him a military edge over the French. But it never came to pass. Soon after landing in the French port of Bordeaux, Princess Joan's entourage died one by one of a mysterious illness. Joan's advisor, Baron Robert Boucher, was the first infected member of her group. On August 16, 1348, he woke up with a fever and chills. By late afternoon, his symptoms had intensified. The Baron developed a splitting headache, and his fever skyrocketed past 103 degrees Fahrenheit. That evening, he noticed a dark red swelling on his upper thigh. It looked like a small balloon was filling up with blood beneath his skin. When he pressed on the abscess, he winced in pain. Within hours, more of these lesions, which contemporary doctors called buboes, appeared on his armpits and neck. Robert watched in horror as they grew as large as chicken eggs and turned black. The buboes made it hard for Robert to move. He called for a doctor who cut away Robert's clothes. Underneath his nightshirt, Robert also had dozens of tiny red splotches. The French physician recognized them as petechiae, pockets of blood caused by vessels bursting under the skin. The doctor believed the buboes were the source of Robert's infection. So he had Robert bite down on a rag while he sliced them open with a knife. As soon as his blade pierced the lump, foul-smelling pus and blood drained out. Robert kept getting worse. He coughed up blood. Waves of nausea overtook him, and he vomited until his stomach was empty. His lungs filled with bloody fluid as he struggled to breathe. After three days of agony, Robert died on August 20th, 1348. By that time, the disease had already spread to most of Princess Joan's wedding party. According to mortality rate estimates, Around 50 of her 100 bodyguards were likely to have fallen ill or died. And on September 2nd, Joan succumbed to the pestilence as well. Outside the chateau, a battle raged between the living and the dead. People died faster than churches could bury them. Vagrants and beggars suffered in the streets and were left to rot. In a last-ditch effort to save his city, the mayor set fire to the affected areas. Families grabbed what they could and fled, leaving their sick relatives behind. The chateau, along with Joan's body, disappeared into the flames. At the time, the disease was called the Great Mortality, or simply Plague. Hundreds of years later, it was renamed the Black Death. The contagion appeared suddenly and ferociously, causing great devastation. Because it was so unfamiliar, rumors swirled about its origins. Most Europeans had no idea that it had struck before. In 541 CE, 800 years before Princess Joan's untimely death, an outbreak of plague appeared in the Egyptian port of Pelusium. 
Even today, its origin point remains a mystery. Some historians believe that it traveled from Africa or India, but new scientific evidence points to the steppe lands of Central Asia. We do know that once plague landed in Pelusium, it spread to Palestine and Alexandria. In spring of 542 CE, it arrived in Constantinople, now known as Istanbul, Turkey. At the time, Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire known as Byzantium. A scholar named Procopius lived through the disease and described symptoms that may sound familiar. People were struck by a mild fever. Within two days, buboes appeared on the groin, armpit, thighs, even behind the ears. From there, the symptoms diverged. Some people fell into a coma and died of starvation. Others grew confused and paranoid as fever made them delirious. Not everyone who caught the pestilence died. The plague chose its victims at random. Some survived after being left for dead, while others perished under the care of the empire's finest physicians. Procopius estimated that at one point during the outbreak, 10,000 people died in Constantinople every day. The disease claimed a third of the population, approximately 150,000 people in the capital city alone. In the countryside, crops were left to rot, creating a critical shortage of food. The crisis crippled the military and ended Byzantine ambitions of regaining lost territories from the old Roman Empire. Plague lasted for four months in Constantinople before it came to a close. But the phenomenon didn't disappear entirely. A lawyer named Agathias wrote that it returned with a vengeance about 15 years later. During this outbreak, the pestilence made its way to Europe, then traveled east. It crippled the Sassanid Persian Empire in modern-day Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. No one knew how it spread or why it kept returning. The best explanation Agathias could offer was that the Earth sometimes passed through unlucky astrological cycles. Perhaps he was right. In the next 200 years, plague returned at least 18 times more, killing between 30 and 50 million people. But around 750 CE, it vanished from the history books. In those days, written texts had to be copied by hand and were only available to a select few. It's possible that no one was willing to pay for the upkeep of plague records, or perhaps there wasn't anyone left to do the job. Whatever the reason, the pestilence was largely forgotten. But it wasn't gone. In the mid-1300s, the disease reappeared. Most historians believe this strain came from somewhere in Asia, such as Mongolia or near Lake Issykul in modern-day Kyrgyzstan. Lake Issykul was a stop along the road for traders between Europe and China. Waterside graves contained the earliest known records of this outbreak. One tombstone from 1339 CE read, This is the grave of Kutluk. He died of the plague with his wife, Magnu Kelka. From Issykul, the disease likely hitched a ride on a passing caravan. Then it made its way to the Italian-controlled port city of Kaffa on the Crimean coast of the Black Sea. 
The Italian notary Gabriel de Mussis gave us the best account of what happened here. In 1343, a fistfight broke out between Italian merchants from Genoa and local Muslims near Kaffa. Knives flashed, and moments later, one of the Muslims was found dead. Outraged by this act, a Mongolian warlord named Janabeg surrounded the city. But the Genoese refused to surrender. The war continued for three years until the besieging Mongols began to die of a strange new disease, bubonic plague. It ripped through the Mongol army like wildfire. Janabeg saw how contagious the disease was. He ordered his men to fling infected corpses over the city walls using trebuchets, medieval weapons meant to hurl rocks from afar. The people inside the city threw the bodies into the sea, but it was too late. According to Demusis, all of Kaffa fell ill within days. Fearing for their lives, the Genoese fled in April 1347, but their vessels had a stowaway. Plague traveled with them. In September 1347, the Genoese ships reached Sicily. Most of the crews perished during the voyage. Those still alive stumbled off of the ships, reeking of sickness. One observer wrote that the travelers were so contagious that if anyone so much as spoke with one of them, he was infected. When the Sicilians discovered how infectious the Genoese were, they expelled them from the island. But the disease already had a foothold in the populace. Their actions put all of Europe at risk. The exiled ships spread out along the Italian coast, bringing death everywhere they went. Meanwhile, other sailors from Kaffa had already infected Mediterranean ports like Constantinople and Athens. Travelers carried it on their clothing, breath, and blood. It reached Marseille in the south of France on November 1, 1347. The following year, it arrived in Bordeaux, where Princess Joan met her fate. In some cases, the disease may have been spread knowingly. A contemporary writer described three infected ships which had been banned from France and Italy. Since they couldn't unload, they set sail for Spain in hopes of selling the cargo there. The captains of these vessels risked infecting others to make a dime. In July 1348, two ships unknowingly infected by plague arrived in the English port of Melcombe. By winter, the disease was all over southern England. Those who could afford it fled the cities, although they weren't much safer in the countryside. Even animals weren't immune. People saw the corpses of rodents, dogs, cats, and livestock, their bodies also marked with black buboes. Henry Knighton, a local priest, claimed that 5,000 sheep had died in a single pasture. It seemed like anything with a pulse was vulnerable to the disease. Amidst this madness, civilization ground to a halt. There wasn't a town in Europe that was immune to the pestilence. An Italian observer wrote that citizens did nothing but bury their friends and families. No one knew what caused plague or how to stop it. One thing was certain. The world would never be the same. Coming up, 
will bear witness to the devastation wrought by plague. Parkasters, if you're fascinated by the mysterious and manipulative side of true crime, you'll love the stories told in the Spotify original from Parkast, Cults. Every Tuesday, step inside the minds of those who led and followed the most controversial, radical, and sometimes deadly organizations in history. Go beyond the headlines and discover the foundation behind notorious cults like Jim Jones and People's Temple, the Rajneesh Movement, Nexium, and more. Each episode of Cults is full of illuminating details of their improbable origins and sinister intentions. Doomsday predictions, religious beliefs, extraterrestrial orders. Find out what really happens inside a cult. Follow the podcast series Cults free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air weekly every Tuesday. And now back to the story. In the 14th century, a contagion swept across Europe, Asia, and North Africa, causing massive devastation. The symptoms included fever, vomiting, bloody phlegm, and black lumps called buboes. These swellings appeared on the patient's neck, armpits, legs, and groin, and were extremely painful. Although statistics from that time are unreliable, our best estimate is that the Black Death had a mortality rate between 30 and 40 percent. Although in some places, the numbers were much higher. In the early 1300s, the Italian city-state of Venice had a population of 120,000. The historian Frederick Lane estimated that 72,000 citizens died during the epidemic. That's 60%. A contemporary writer named Giovanni Boccaccio described the horror he witnessed in his native Florence. He said, Many dropped dead in the open streets, whilst a great many others, though dying in their own houses, drew their neighbors' attention by the smell of their rotting corpses. This scourge had implanted such a great terror in the hearts of men and women. Throughout Europe, cemeteries overflowed. According to one writer, at every church they dug deep pits. Those who were poor who died during the night were bundled up quickly and thrown in the pit. In the morning, they took some earth and shoveled it down on top. Later, others were placed on top of them, and then another layer of earth, just as one makes lasagna with layers of pasta and cheese. Church bells echoed on empty streets. Black flags fluttered in the breeze, warning travelers to stay away. In some locations, the fatality rate was so high, entire villages were abandoned. The fear of death affected people differently. According to the writer Boccaccio, some people locked themselves in their houses. Others pretended the outbreak didn't exist. They roamed from one tavern to the next, drinking heavily and ignoring the chaos around them. Many people tried to maintain some sense of normalcy. They carried flowers or spices to cover up the foul smells, then went to work as usual. Others left the cities as quickly as they could. No matter where they went, disease followed, but not everyone suffered the same fate. 
there were three different forms of plague, bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. Depending on which type a person contracted, they could have a better chance at survival than their neighbor. We now know that all three are caused by a bacterium that makes its home in the patient's lymphatic system, a network of nodes and vessels that help the body filter out dangerous microorganisms. When a plague bacterium enters the body, it's captured and brought to the nearest lymph node. Normally, the patient's white blood cells engulf and kill the intruder, but plague bacteria are clever. They have specialized proteins that shield them from the body's immune system defenses. Inside the lymph node, the organism multiplies uncontrollably. When it dies, it releases a toxin that kills the patient's cells. Within two to six days, the lymph node expands and fills with dead cells, forming the characteristic black bubo. As the infection spreads to other nodes, more buboes appear on the body. This was what the traditional bubonic plague looked like. Untreated, it had a mortality rate between 30 to 60 percent. Infected patients usually died within a week of the onset of symptoms, but those who survived often made a full recovery. Princess Jones advisor Robert Boucher was not as lucky. He suffered from pneumonic plague. In addition to his infected lymph nodes, Robert also had plague bacteria in his lungs. As a result, he died while coughing up blood and vomiting. Unlike bubonic plague, pneumonic plague killed 95% of its victims within three days. The third variety, septicemic plague, was very rare and even more fatal. These victims fell ill almost instantaneously, but were unlikely to develop buboes. Instead, their fingers and toes turned black as the bacteria flooded their bloodstream and cut off circulation to the limbs. They often died around 15 hours after displaying symptoms. All across Europe, people tried to make sense of this carnage. In the Middle Ages, most diseases were attributed to divine providence. Everyone agreed that God was chastising them for their sins. The specifics of why they deserved this punishment varied. A German monk named Heinrich von Hereford said Catholic Church officials brought God's wrath upon themselves. As proof, he pointed to clergymen who traded posts and church property for money, favors, even sex. The Archbishop of York blamed the pestilence on sinful people who, while enjoying good times, forget that such things are the gifts of the Most High Giver. In other words, they had turned their backs on God in favor of earthly pleasures. Other priests attributed plague to new fashion trends in immodestly dressed women. When an outbreak of plague struck down children at a high rate, one priest blamed it on kids who disobeyed their parents. The sheer scale of devastation convinced many that the biblical apocalypse was nigh. People said that the Antichrist had risen in the form of a ten-year-old boy who was allegedly seen walking around Rome. They believed the only way to survive was to beg God for forgiveness. Kings asked their bishops to create special prayers to combat plague. These were recited daily as a shield against infection. But even the holiest of men were not immune to the disease. 
On May 2, 1349, John Offord, Chancellor of King Edward III and the nominee to become the Archbishop of Canterbury, died of plague. Shortly afterwards, the king chose his friend, 59-year-old Thomas Bradwarding, to become the new archbishop. Bradwarding was a brilliant, Oxford-educated scholar. He was known for his upstanding moral character and devotion to God. King Edward believed that Bradwardine's holy presence was responsible for his military victory against the French back in 1346. Bradwarding came to England in August 1349, but several days after his arrival, the new archbishop felt fatigued and out of sorts. The next day, he developed a fever and the buboes appeared. Five days after that, he was dead. The archbishop's death sent shockwaves through the populace. A holy man of unassailable character, a friend of the king's no less, had perished in the same manner as the lowliest peasant. People wondered why God hadn't protected him. In reality, none of the clergy were safe. Plague devastated all ranks of the Catholic Church. Henry Knighton, a British priest, described how in one French city, only seven of his brethren remained out of the initial 140. Because of this, priests were in short supply. Many charged exorbitant fees for confessions and memorial services. Some refused to visit homes stricken by plague altogether. To address the shortage, laymen were inducted into the clergy with little or no training. People doubted whether their priests were up to the task. Plague weakened the previously untouchable authority of the church, creating a power vacuum. A number of radical religious sects tried to fill in the void. These heretics promised a cure, and people flocked to them. The most notorious of these groups were the Flagellants. The Flagellants were an organized sect of monks and fanatics who believed the disease could be stopped with violent atonement and penance. They swore off money and all temptations of the flesh. They claimed their bodies were sinful and that the evil had to be beaten away. Their visits were unforgettable. Flagellants wore white cloaks painted with red crosses. Hundreds of them roamed barefoot together from village to village, announcing themselves with sweetly melodic songs. Many villagers showered them with gifts. Some of the locals dragged their sick relatives outside and begged the visitors to heal them. The flagellants continued to chant, asking for God's forgiveness as they walked to each local church. Once inside, they enclosed the upper halves of their bodies and whipped themselves violently with sharpened metal tied to a rope. When the ritual was finally over, they put their clothes back on and marched to the next town. The local authorities rarely welcomed these horrific displays, but they were powerless to stop them. Many villagers joined in, hoping their penance would appease God's wrath and bring an end to the calamity. When a flagellant became sick with plague, it was only because they weren't penitent enough. The flagellants were also a threat to the existing religious order. Pope Clement VI initially supported the flagellants, but when they flouted church authority and incited violence, he changed his tune. Clement forbade his followers from having anything to do with them, 
and the French king, Philip VI, banned the movement altogether. For men of science, flagellation was superstitious nonsense. In their minds, the only way to stop plague was to understand it medically. Unfortunately, no one could agree on what caused the disease. It was common practice in the Middle Ages to use astrology and biblical omens to explain the natural world. Many writers spoke of powerful storms and venomous creatures raining from the sky just before plague struck. While they accepted that plague was sent by God, doctors looked for the organic culprits behind its spread. Some blamed unripe food. Others believed earthquakes expelled poisonous gases from the ground. The general consensus, dating back to ancient Greece, was that epidemics came from toxic vapors called miasmas. The University of Paris medical faculty wrote that corrupted air, when breathed in, penetrates to the heart and corrupts the substance of the spirit. But where these miasmas came from was the subject of debate. It was assumed that they originated in swamps or other places with foul odors, in early 1348, King Philip asked the Paris medical faculty to come up with a definitive answer. The doctors read through the works of ancient Greek physicians like Hippocrates and Galen, as well as more recent publications from Islamic scholars. Following the advice of the great philosopher Aristotle, they first looked for an astrological cause. In June 1348, King Philip's physicians declared that the distant and first cause of this pestilence was the configuration of the heavens. They believed Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn had aligned in a dangerous way. The event heated the air and created toxic vapors carried by the wind. This explanation seemed logical at the time. After all, the moon is responsible for creating tides. It made sense for the planets to affect other natural phenomena. These philosophical accounts greatly interested scholars and kings. But most peasants didn't know or care if Saturn was the source of the plague. They were tired of burying their loved ones. They just wanted to know how to make it stop. Coming up, we'll look at the strange and sometimes violent treatments for plague. And now, back to the story. The Black Death was the single largest pandemic in history and claimed more than 25 million lives between 1347 and 1352. It swept the European countryside, leaving humanity grasping for explanations. Everyone assumed plague was divine punishment, but no one knew exactly where it came from or how to end it. Many turned to religious rituals to ward off the evil. Holy relics containing the bones of saints were paraded through the streets. People trampled one another just to get a quick touch, hoping it would cleanse their sins. Medical cures were just as important as spiritual ones. First-hand accounts show an expansive list of home remedies that ranged from practical to truly bizarre. In 1365, a contemporary physician called John of Burgundy wrote a treatise on the prevention and cure of the plague. 
In it, he described the affliction largely as a result of evil vapors and immoral habits. Vice was unhealthy, and it supposedly welcomed disease. John also recommended that people avoid bathing. Many medieval doctors believed that water opened the pores, allowing toxic substances like miasmas into the skin. Baths were already considered a luxury, and in religious circles, they were often seen as sinful. He also felt that smoke could prevent plague. John recommended burning juniper branches inside one's home to cleanse it of bad air. He prescribed medicines such as vinegar and rose water to drive the sickness-inducing smell away. When John of Burgundy met with a patient, he also read their horoscope. Just as the planets could affect the health of the world, they could also impact a person's overall well-being. Finally, he took samples of their stool, saliva, and urine, looking for unusual colors and smells. John's understanding of medicine came from the ancient Greeks. In the 5th century BCE, the Greek physician Hippocrates wrote that the human body is composed of four basic fluids, called humors. They consisted of blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. From Hippocrates, John and his contemporaries learned that poisons, such as the one that caused plague, disrupted the delicate interplay of these humors, leading to sickness. They felt that the only way to give his patients a fighting chance was to extract the toxin. So John used leeches and needles to drain the corrupt blood from his patients. He started near the buboes, where the infection was strongest. In his mind, it was like sucking poison from a snake bite. Next, John made a paste out of roots and herbs mixed with ammonia and chamomile oil. Then he spread his concoction on the buboes. This was meant to keep the poison from reinfecting the body. In the 14th century, John's approach would have been considered high-quality medical care. Of course, every doctor had his own remedies. Some touted the benefits of apple syrup, rose water, and peppermint. One recipe called for the patient to drink a potion made from mercury and gold. Supposedly, it had magical healing properties. The most coveted treatment for plague was theriac, a remedy made from pulverized snake flesh. Doctors thought venomous snakes had poison in their skin, which could counteract the toxins caused by plague. However, none of these cures were proven effective. In fact, many were quite harmful. The gold and mercury mixture actually caused heavy metal poisoning, and none of the remedies stemmed the flood of new cases. As a result, town councils all over Europe passed public health ordinances to keep the disease at bay. In May of 1348, the Italian town of Pistoria decreed that no one coming from a plague-infected area could enter the city limits. They even posted guards at the borders. Some of the earliest innovations in public health came out of the Black Death. For example, in 1348, Florence and Venice created municipal health communities. Their job was to handle the safety and logistics of sanitation and burials. Acting on orders from the Venetian Health Board, soldiers boarded up every ship arriving at the port. If they found any signs of sickness, they exiled the crews and set the vessels on fire. 
They also implemented some of the earliest social distancing measures in history. They forbade people from interacting with relatives of the deceased and limited public gatherings. They shut down taverns and other places where large groups congregated. In 1377, Venice created the first recorded quarantine around Ragusa, a port city which is now Dubrovnik, Croatia. Ragusa was a Venetian colony and a vital part of its vast trading empire. When a new outbreak began that year, city officials enacted a law to prevent plague from returning. Anyone coming from an infested area had to wait 30 days on the nearby island before entering the city. Other towns would later extend this period to 40 days. Quaranta, the Italian word for 40, is the root of the modern word quarantine. Other laws called for the infected to be exiled before they could pass the disease to their relatives. Husbands left their dying wives and mothers abandoned their sick children on the edge of town. The fear of other people spread faster than plague itself. While royal physicians believed that miasmas were responsible, many people suspected a more sinister cause. They wondered if their tragedies were actually the work of the devil, who was using people to do his bidding. Villagers looked upon travelers with suspicion. They harassed pilgrims from other countries and drove strangers away. In Spain, Catholic hatred toward Muslims flared up, and Arabs were accused of causing plague deliberately. French officials tried to score diplomatic points by telling the Spanish king it was spread by English spies. However, one group was targeted more fiercely than the rest. For centuries, Jewish people had been a favorite scapegoat during times of crisis. Part of the animosity came from religious differences. Catholics viewed Jewish people as heretics. Official church pamphlets wrongfully depicted the Jewish community as greedy monsters in league with the Antichrist. Another factor was economics. Jewish people sometimes worked as moneylenders, a profession which made them both wealthy and despised. People who accrued debt organized violence against Jewish communities to avoid repayment. They were falsely accused of many horrible atrocities, from cannibalism to poisoning wells. When plague arrived in Europe, these resentments made the Jewish community a prime target, and the chaos came to a head on a Palm Sunday. This holiday is celebrated with a feast to commemorate Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem. It's the first day of the Catholic Holy Week, which ends with Easter. During the Middle Ages, Holy Week was celebrated in many cities with brutal acts of violence against Jewish people. The French city of Toulon was no exception. When Palm Sunday came in 1348, plague had already ravaged the population. As they had in the past, the city's residents blamed their misfortunes on their Jewish neighbors. That evening, an angry Christian mob descended on the Jewish quarter and destroyed it. They smashed windows and looted properties before killing 40 innocent people. The violence spread to nearby villages, a reign of terror that eradicated many of the continent's Jewish communities. All over Europe, venomous rumors spoke of a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, 
just by spreading plague. On September 15, 1348, the Swiss town of Chion added fuel to the anti-Semitic fire. On that day, officials arrested a Jewish surgeon named Balavignus and tortured him relentlessly. To make the pain stop, he falsely confessed to participating in a Jewish plot. According to the official report, Balavignus was hired by a sinister rabbi named Jacob. Jacob sent him and other conspirators packets of poison to add to the public wells. The authorities took Balavignus on a tour of the area, stopping to point out the wells he'd supposedly poisoned. Once his captors had everything they needed, they burned him at the stake. Balavignus's so-called confession was quickly disseminated. More supposed conspirators were tortured until they validated his story. As word of Balavignus's crime spread, the massacre spiraled out of control. Germany was particularly ruthless. Towns rose up and exterminated their Jewish communities one by one. A great number of people committed suicide. In the German town of Speyer, many people were hunted down and murdered. One of the worst incidents took place in the city of Strasbourg in February 1349. Plague had been threatening Strasbourg since the previous summer. In nearby cities, thousands had died, and its citizens were desperate to rid themselves of the people they believed caused it. After a long night with many deaths, an angry mob marched on City Hall. The mayor yelled at them to go home. If the city's Jewish citizens were responsible for plague, he wanted to see proof. The city council sided with him, but they were far from having the last word. On February 9th, the mob overthrew the entire local government in retaliation. They replaced the city officials with their own people. Five days later, they dragged around half of the city's nearly 2,000 Jewish residents from their homes to a local cemetery. Men, women, and children were stripped naked and burned alive. The genocide continued throughout the year, encouraged by the zealous flagellants. They believed that murdering Jewish people was a Christian's moral duty and that it would end plague. This wave of brutality was opposed by those in power, and a few people stood up to protect the Jewish community. Pope Clement VI threatened to excommunicate anyone who joined an anti-Semitic mob. Duke Casimir II of Poland created a safe zone for Jewish people, and thousands of refugees fled to his territory. By 1351, the anti-Semitism had died down as the Black Death receded. The number of plague fatalities declined, and the world breathed a sigh of relief. But the disease never disappeared completely. Each new outbreak re-inflamed humanity's worst instincts of fear, suspicion, and hatred. England was still struggling to recover from the first wave when a second epidemic hit in 1361. Contemporaries refer to this as the children's plague because it killed so many young people. Outbreaks of plague happened every few years all over Europe. Over time, the mortality rates appeared to drop in many areas. One exception was the Great Plague of London in 1665, which killed more than 70,000 people. 
no one knew why it came and went, but societies started to accept plague as a part of life. Doctors continued to speculate on what caused it, how it traveled, and why none of their remedies actually saved lives. It would be centuries before modern medicine finally caught up with plague and delivered answers. Meanwhile, the disease continued to kill indiscriminately and strike fear into the hearts of millions. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with part two of Bubonic Plague. For more information about the Black Death, we found The Great Mortality by John Kelly and In the Wake of the Plague by Norman Cantor to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Music